0: This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. The podcast that's willing to go where other Buddhist podcasts fear to tread. Each episode features a topical discussion and a bit of banter, or an interview with an interesting guest. You can download episodes from SoundCloud and get stuck into the discussion over at our dedicated Facebook page. We also do Twitter, and you can find out more on many of the topics discussed over at the Post-Traditional Buddhism website. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Stuart, it's been a little while. We had a summer break, and I thought I was going to lose you at some point. But you're with me today, isn't that nice? That's lovely. And you got a nice cup of coffee there to keep you awake as well.
1: I have a fat cup of coffee, yeah.
0: Now, what listeners often don't know is that often we do these in the evening with a couple of beers at hand because it helps us to loosen up and sort of reconnect to the spirit of those pub conversations we used to have, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's,
0: that's completely right. So this is a coffee-fueled session today, which I hope will make us sharper because the topic we're going to look at is pretty, pretty intense. Quite demanding, but very interesting. But before we get on to it, Stuart, uh, I just said it, but we almost had a breakup.
1: You almost left me that's right man that's right you know eyes do wander and uh maintaining that maintaining the, the fuel for the long distance can be a challenge as you know
0: yeah so you're saying you're more of a sprinter than a marathon runner
1: <laughs> no i just need a i just need to keep my eye on the end goal and then i can go forever okay because i mean if that's an analogy
0: used for sexual relationships there could be a problem
1: that would be a bad analogy but that's not true in any way shape or form <laughs>
0: Good. So I have something to check before we can get down to serious business. I I feel mm, I feel there may have been some unwarranted betrayal going on on your side. Hmm, you think now, so? Can you, Why? Yeah. I'd like. Why? Can you conf- can you confirm this rumor? Because uh, a few people told me that they'd seen you uh, hog nogging with Ted Meisner, and possibly you were trying to get in on the uh, secular Buddhist podcast series. Is that right?
1: Oh, um, no, no, that's not that's not true.
0: I've got a Twitter photo as here as well that shows Vince Horn holding your CV. Uh,
1: Can you that, confirm this? This is this is complete um, flagrant misrepresentation. This is this is not true. So you're you're dedicated to the imperfect Buddha podcast? Totally, one hundred percent. I I can't I can't believe you're even questioning my loyalty. This directly on air. I'm 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 shocked, Matthew.
0: Okay, okay, all right, so we'll let this, this, this is water under the bridge. Let's move on. Mm. Take your word for it, but no more funny stuff, Stuart. No more. Once you commit, you commit. Okay. All right, now moving on. Today's topic is non-Buddhism, which we'll get stuck into in a moment. That's going to lead us to an interview with a special guest that's Glenn Wallace, where well, hey, he's coming out of the, coming out of the dark again, out of the hiding, Stuart. He's going to actually come and have a chat with us about his work, which is quite an honour because uh, I don't think he has much to do with Buddhism in any way whatsoever these days.
1: Yeah, so I don't think, like you say, I don't think he has anything to do with Buddhism now. So, and I haven't even heard him speak, I don't think. I've read a number of articles and interviews and the stuff, at the, you know, his book and that lot, but I've not heard him speak. So like you say, it'd be, it'd be quite an honour to have him on the show.
0: After that, we're going to be looking at one of the big issues that's important to both you and I, and that the non-Buddhism challenges in many regards. And it's a discussion I'd like to have. I, I don't know who, I think you and I will manage, but I'm going to try and get two guests involved in that. I'd like a discussion about Dzogchen and Mahamudra and non-dual awareness and this sort of thing, and some of the considerations On that, that do emerge once you start to uh, look at, uh, you know, current science and uh, philosophy as far as mind and individuality and so forth is concerned. So that's a surprise for you, Stuart. You didn't know about that, but that's on the cards. Uh, I also want to do a special on post-traditional Buddhism. That may actually be the next follow-up to non-Buddhism. So that's something for people to look forward to. And I've got a couple of rather big-name guests who are likely coming on as well, Stuart. Again, hush-hush. Let's see how it goes. And Stuart, you know, I'd like to make happen at some point. I'd like us to have some threesomes. I'd like to open up the relationship.
1: Okay, so this, this is this is your way of directly addressing the the commitment issues that we've been having. <laughs>
0: That's right. I figure, going I have a backup partner, <laughs> I'm going to get my needs met. <laughs> Me too, man. For fuck's sake. <laughs> oh dear. And maybe maybe one day, Stuart, you know, this bringing in another person into the relationship, you know, sort of bursting that intimacy bubble will encourage you to do some episodes on your own. Oh, my. Yeah, wouldn't that be quite something? (laughs) One last thing to say before we get going with today's topic. I actually saw a very interesting documentary yesterday, actually, Stuart. I was watching it while I was doing a home gym. And it's one of those things that, you know, I don't know what other people are like, but I get really enthusiastic about things that I enjoy. I actually studied film, for example, and I've seen so many films throughout my life that I find watching films quite a burden these days. So when I see something that actually stands out, really grabs my attention, and hopefully surprises me, like a good thriller. You know, I love thrillers, but unfortunately these days, you know, I watch one in the first five minutes, I more or less know what's going to happen. So if I'm surprised by something, I'm really happy about it. And if I watch a good documentary that sort of Disobeys some of the conventions of documentary making and it's stimulating and interesting at the same time my urge is to share it you know i, I just can't help it I, it's just the way i'm made so you know i shared it on twitter i shared it on facebook and i'm going to share it now and there's something i think actually that's going to be helpful for us that comes out of this documentary let me give you the name you can watch it online it's available on youtube it's called bbc ben building mussolini monuments and modernism It's from this year, so it's dead recent. The presenter is a guy called Jonathan Meads, who turns out to be a journalist. He was actually a food critic, oddly enough, but he's as smart as can be. He's a real bright cookie, smart cookie, bright cookie, both work. Absolutely brilliant. If you are even mildly intelligent, enjoy a bit of humor with your European history, check it out. And one thing that's great about Jonathan Meads is he's extremely smart and an extremely good communicator, and he's got a wonderfully ironic sense of humour. I actually think he encapsulates what I would define as the two fundamental qualities of a good history teacher. He makes everything sort of relevant and new, and he mixes in irreverent humour. So there it is. Stuart, I recommend you go watch it too.
1: Cool, I will. I think I will. I'm I'm digging into um, Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States at the moment, so... How's that going? That's pretty good. I've watched maybe half of the first one, so I'm not enough to be able to comment on it, but it starts off by covering uh, Second World War, and he wants to cover, the guy wants to cover unsung heroes, you know, people that have stepped forward to make, to do the right thing, to make the right call and do the right choices, but history's forgotten them because of whatever reason, so and to rewrite some of the the main narrative of, of American culture. And I think that, that will be interesting. That's what I'm digging into. So once, I, once I've done that, I'll check that out. Definitely, thanks. Good, good. Well, one thing that makes
0: this documentary relevant to today's podcast is that the material was very dense, and Jonathan uses a very rich vocabulary. In fact, I found myself um, grabbing the dictionary and looking up a couple of words, which, as you well know, is one of the themes that emerges in engaging with Glenn Wallace's work.
1: You like doing that, don't you? Doing what? Grabbing the dictionary and looking up terms.
0: Well, you kind of have to, don't you? Otherwise, there's just blanks. It's, you know, the guy's talking, and then suddenly there's this big complex word. It could be an adjective or a noun, and it's fundamental to understanding what he's saying. I mean, you've kind of got to, otherwise you just go, oh, yeah, that sounded good. But what did he say? I don't know.
1: That's right. You know. It just sounds coming out of somebody's face at that point, right?
0: Exactly. And with, you know, English having so many words, we are compelled to do so if we wish to expand our knowledge, Stuart. Yeah. One thing that comes out of that documentary is really dense, really dense, very rich, about an hour and a half, so it's like the length of a film. The first, third was really cohesive, and although demanding, was extremely entertaining. And then suddenly he jumps, and everything's connected to the main themes, you know, which are, you know, modernism and and fascist dictatorships and so forth. But it's, it's like, I kind of felt at that point he should have taken a break. He should have said, right, that's the first part, this is the second part, now we're going in this direction. Just to orientate listeners or viewers and i think we should do the same today what i'd like to do is use a really big ominous voice part one something like this the voice of god the voice of god yeah can you do a god voice part one god voice part one <laughs> all right there it is so we're going to signal the stages of today's work part one will be starting any moment but there's one last thing to get in this is called the house cleaning i think this We've actually got a few sponsors, Stuart. So we had a couple of sponsors last time. We've got some more. And we've got an added cultural flavor, which we're going to mix into the mix. Mix into the mix. The first one is a book recommendation. So today's show is sponsored by the Lady Bird Book of Mindfulness. It's quite wonderful. And I'm going to read you three sections, if I may. May I do that, Stuart? Please. Okay, so what you get is a really nice picture with usually just three very short sentences. That's a spread, so it's not very demanding. You can read through the whole thing in five minutes. It's very serious material though, quite enlightening. Here's the first one. It says, mindfulness is the skill of thinking you are doing something when you are doing nothing. One of the good things about mindfulness is that you get to do a lot of sitting down. Sitting down is good for the mind because so much positive energy is stored
1: in the lap. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm 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 clearly not getting the profundity of that. Oh that statement Matthew. That that seemed funny to me. I'm 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 sorry. I'll do the next one. I'll I'll, okay. I'll try and focus more.
0: Just just hold it together. The book tends to choose some
1: very interesting names.
0: So this chap is called Wendell. <laughs> All right. Not Wendell. Not Wendy. <laughs> Who the hell calls themselves Wendell in this day and age?
1: <laughs> I don't think he called himself Wendell, but <laughs> <laughs> fair point, fair point. Uh,
0: (laughs) some people do change their names my stepdad did so wendell achieves a state of mindfulness by imagining he is floating in a beautiful lake until his mind empties of everyday worries soon he is aware of himself but no longer worried about money work family or whether he left the taps on in the bathroom many home insurance policies now cover Acts of Mindfulness. <laughs> oh, dear. Love it. This is very irreverent British humour, but hopefully the Americans will get it too. And the last one, let's just have one more before people start turning off. <laughs> uh, this very nice dramatic picture looks like from the 1950s, this one with this sort of film star, you know, laying on the bed. Anna. Okay, regular name this time around. Anna has emptied her mind and is just listening to the world around her. She can hear the neighbours arguing. Two ambulances... A burglar alarm, a child crying, and the sound of dubstep coming from a nearby car. She's also concentrating on her own feelings, like her cystitis.
1: Nice. Thank you, Matthew. Part
0: one. (laughs) Okay, we're ready. We're going to start part one. So, quick introduction. Yeah, I've got this bit. Okay, folks. Part one, the meat of the podcast episode today. As you will have gathered from the title in the intro, we are today looking at the topic of non-Buddhism, which was started off by an important figure called Glenn Wallace. Non-Buddhism is a big, big topic, possibly one of the most interesting and radical topics that concerns Western Buddhism in our day and age. Um, Glenn's work is an immense challenge to our sense of self, uh, whether as Buddhists or simply as spiritual beings, or as Westerners embroiled in the challenges facing us, in the form of highly disruptive ideas that are the leading edge of thought in our time. Um, Glenn is quite a challenge for the timid and the passive Western Buddhist, but I don't think we have many of those listening to our podcast. Many of you will be familiar with this work already, and I hope that if you are familiar with it and you uh, left a bad taste in your mouth, that you will be patient today and give it a second go. Stuart and I will do our best to make it accessible. That's uh, our intent, to make it relevant and to... Combine it with something that was often left out, or criticized about it, the practicalities of things like meditation practice and and ongoing relationships with Buddhism. What does it do? Why is it so challenging? Well, uh, the first thing is that, I've said it before, Westerners are so deeply embedded in the Christian narrative that fundamental assumptions run through how we relate to knowledge and practices such as meditation, and this applies equally to Buddhism as a whole. I would suggest that we we still hold out for a savior, whether it's in the form of a person or some sort of divinity or just a path, actually. Uh, We desire a happy ending, and let's be honest, you know, all of the narratives that tend to saturate our modern Western culture are still full of them, whether it's a book or a film or a TV series. But perhaps most of all, we seek refuge, a respite from the intensity of life, a get-out clause from the dullness or the difficulties of our human existence. We would like a happy ever after, and it's there lingering in the background for most of us, and boy, is it insipid. It hides. And it's not about us as individuals necessarily. It's about our species and the expected inevitability that we will just keep going, that we will still be there tomorrow and the next day, and that there will always be progress towards the light in the form of a better future. Glenn Wallace's work and also Tom Pepper, another associate of the Non-Buddhism Project, argued time and time again that this is not the case and and that these assumptions are wrong. They also argued that Buddhists in the West sneak a soul into the mix, even when they try not to. That soul, that lasting self or essence lingers there, and we are reluctant to cease existing. We are all compelled to wrap the world in a vision that makes sense to us, and preferably one of goodness. that doesn't ring bells for the Tibetan Buddhists out there, I don't know what will. So we may state that we buy into Buddhism's claims of emptiness and a lack of a soul, and yet hidden inside of us, a part of us holds out hope. Because let's be honest, to be is seductive. I know I like it, even when it sucks. So we rationalize it, but we still hold on. And to give up a refuge is to take a route to honesty and the truth of our human condition. It's painful, crude, and often disappointing. Now, Glenn's work has within it many of the components challenging, well, I would say, not just Buddhists, but all members of our species. Those age-old existential challenges have raised our mortality, our too real humanity, and our inseparability from this organic world we can't have it. So our difficulty in overcoming our anthropocentrism and our distorted hierarchy of things in this world. So what does Glenn not do? Well, he doesn't provide another refuge. And I say that because often highly religious folks, most commonly the Christians in the West, like to state, for example, that atheism is just another religion or belief system. Wrong, I'm afraid. Not true. It's the absence of. Glenn's position is not just another Buddhism either. In fact, this is really important. It's not even in opposition to Buddhism, and therefore frustrates many who engage with it, looking to assert their own position, identities, and beliefs. Glenn's work is a commitment to our human lot, and a magnificent work of critique of Buddhism as ideology and Buddhism as a man-made thing. To engage with non-Buddhism openly is to go down the rabbit hole, to take the red pill, and to lose some of those comforts of refuge and salvation, which is quite a challenge. To engage with it is nothing personal, yet it attacks the all-too-human personal investments we make in Buddhism as refuge, but from what, well, Glenn would argue, from reality, or from the real. He rightly points out, The Buddhism, and therefore all Buddhists, is unaware of its own detachment from the real world, from the flesh-and-blood world of uncompromised matter. Its promises are necessarily encased in its own means for seeing and knowing, which is to say it's an ideology. But it's one that doesn't realize what it is. It's blind to its own ideological status. Glenn doesn't offer the next step, the evolution or the saving grace. His work breaks open the door of mirrors, which prevent Buddhism and Buddhists from realizing they are all too often enacting a number of elaborate games with the wrong labels attached. Engaging with non-Buddhism can be a form of catharsis, a ritual shedding of the masks, the dormants, and customs of Buddhism as identity. It is therefore deeply uncomfortable and not necessarily advisable for the timid. In fact, the reactions to it are very telling and illustrative of patterns of resistance that many exhibited when they engage with this work superficially over at the website. Now, Stuart and I will try our best to transmit some of the power of this work in this episode and do so in conversation with you, listener, not as intellectuals, academics, or even readers of continental philosophy, but as fellow humans brave enough to be interested in how such ideas can impact our lives and our relationship with Buddhism as a source of ideas and practices. Each section warrants time, effort, and Establishment, I would say, of a human relationship, as if it was a form of practice. That is to to say, to be worked with, to thought about, to be applied. In fact, I don't know what it's like for you, Stuart, but each time I read one of the sections, it's it's like, oh my God, it's it's demanding something of me yet again. I end up thinking out loud about it, opening my mind further and realizing the implications, ramifications, and importance of it all. It's very intense. So to finish off this introduction, I would invite you to consider how some of today's material relates to any ideology and safe space of identity. For Stuart and I, it's been fascinating and and liberating. And I think for many of us, the latter is why we got interested in Buddhism in the first place, and part of why many of us left organized Buddhism behind. We will deal with some of the critiques, too, at the end. Um, I would suggest, though, that many of those were based on personality politics a poor reading of the material, or value judgments rather than ideas judgments. The last thing that hopefully goes without saying, certainly if you've listened to other episodes of this podcast, uh, Stuart and I are not high-level intellectuals. Can you confirm that, Stuart?
1: I can confirm that. That is absolutely true.
0: And we have no background in philosophy, so um, if we can make sense of it and find such immense value, well, there's a good chance you will too. So, listeners, get ready. Here it is, non-Buddhism. It's gonna be fun. Stuart, who is Glenn Wallace?
1: Glenn is a Harvard PhD in academic Buddhist studies. He has published six books, and in no particular order they are Cruel Theory, Sublime Practice, The Basic Teachings of the Buddha, Mediating the Power of Buddhas, The Dharmapada, Verses in the Way, and Buddhavakana a Pali reader, and I believe his latest book is a critique on Western Buddhism, the self-help myth. The books that I have read and, and the work that I've looked at from him are Speculative Non-Buddhism on the speculativenonbuddhism.com site. I've read his nascent Speculative Non-Buddhism PDF on on several occasions. So I'm assuming Matthew from reading these and from looking at the way that he's progressed through his work... And on reading the cruel theory, sublime practice, which I found to be excellent, it's heady, you know. It's it's intelligent. Glenn is clearly intelligent, not only in the you know what could be called classically intelligent in terms of a uh, a Western education, a university education up to PhD level. Clearly, that takes a a classical level of intelligence, but also creatively, as we'll get to later, kind of in a non linear fashion, in a way that asks uncomfortable questions that looks at how things go together how do the pieces of the puzzle within within a certain specific subject area go together and so i'm assuming from from glenn's earlier to later to latest works i'm i'm assuming a certain level of evolution i see his work as more as moving towards standing more outside of buddhism's structural edifices and i can see from that that for example that his work is not what i would expect from a, a traditional buddhist academic it's it's not what i would expect from a dry academic and glenn clearly is not a dry academic his cruel theory, sublime practice is an excellent book it's heady it takes time like you said you have to pick up a dictionary more than once to read this i need to revisit it i really want to revisit it but part of me doesn't want to revisit it because i know that when i revisit it it's it's, it's not a chore but it takes time it takes work and it's not something you can just zip through you know it it takes a a dedicated amount of time and a dedicated amount of space and for that reason when I do go back I'll make sure that I do that and also through his nascent speculative non-buddhism pdf I've gone through that on several occasions you've recommended to me a number of times Matthew it's good it's about 26 pages long although again you know that it takes time the first time I read it I think it took me it took me two or three attempts to get through it so yeah that's probably part of what motivates some people to give up on it Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Which is a shame because I think something we're going to be arguing today is that it is a liberating force and it provides some of... I mean, We have to be clear about this whole issue of intellectualism. The first text I ever read over at the Speculative Non-Buddhism site was not Glenn's work. It was actually an article by Tom Pepper on Buddhist anti-intellectualism. There is some of that going on. I mean, it, it, American culture is beset by this sort of refusal of you know, sophisticated argumentation. We see that in the role of Trump and, and so forth, but the dumbing down of culture. But of course, Europe is not immune to such things either, but we don't tend to have this anti-intellectualist culture. And it, it's important to understand that intellectual ability or capacity is not this distancing yourself from your experience. I think there's still this dichotomy that a lot of people play out and they have difficulty understanding or articulating fully. There's me in my world, there's my feelings, my intuition, and that direct experience, which we like to talk about so much in Buddhist circles. And then there's theory, then there's the abstract, then there's thinking and intellectualizing things. One major theme that runs through Glenn's work is that actually, you've got to come back to thinking. You've got to think. You've got to think clearly. And in fact, if you're not thinking clearly at all, if you're trying just to suspend thought all the time, you're basically making yourself stupid. I think that's, that's true. That's my point. What's actually missing there is not just this, this call people stupid, which is obviously something we don't want to do. Uh, or if we did, we'd start with ourselves, right? <laughs> well, I'd start with me, Stuart. I don't want to be presumptuous. <laughs> I can so talk funny. about my neighbors, too, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Only kidding. Lovely
1: stand-up citizens. <laughs> uh, no comment.
0: <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I started off with Vispasana practice, but I quickly moved over to Tibetan practice. You know, And in the Galupa school, which is where I, where I began, you know, really to, to seriously engage with, you know, institutionalized Buddhism, I mean, the vast majority of the meditation practice they, they work with is contemplation. It's not, you know, watching the breath. It's not working with sensations in the body. It's not counting. It's not any of that. It's take an idea, contemplate it, reflect on it, sit with it. Now unfortunately what that ends up often being is a sort of institutional programming. That is, they give you the thing to contemplate and they give you the expected answers. Yeah? So in the sense of independent thought doesn't really exist in those circles, sorry to say it. I was gonna but, say I was gonna yeah. say
1: that's interesting because the Gulukpa school is clearly the more intellectually rigorous of the four yeah. of the five, right? yeah or six depending on you know where you go to look but this is clearly the more intellectually rigorous of the Tibetan Buddhist schools and to be given an a predetermined answer when you're intellectually investigating that's not intellectual investigation is it
0: not at all in fact glenn would probably define that as sort of the reproduction of ideology but let's not jump ahead of ourselves the one point i wanted to make i would suggest that you could take glenn's pdf document because it's free is that you can take each of the points, whether it's the introductory sections, which act as an affront to sort of blind Buddhist allegiance and unthinking allegiance. And then there's a heuristic, which we'll get to onto in a minute, which provides a whole set of topics that you could actually meditate on, contemplate, think about and sit with. And I think that's the nice antidote to anybody out there who's listening and thinking, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's just theory. It's just abstraction. It's just thinking, blah, blah, blah. What about my direct experience? So one of the things we're going to try and argue today is that actually there's a huge bridge between the two. That bridge has been missing. And Glenn actually provides it whether he wanted to or not is another question.
1: Cool. Cool. Yeah, I've got a bit more to add to that with regards to Glenn and with regards to this work before we roll on. So from my exposure to these works, as you said, Matthew, I can see that Glenn's contribution of of providing that bridge, of providing that dialogue and the, the format and the forum to be able to discuss these ideas in a way that doesn't predetermine the outcome, I see it as valuable, intellectually and creatively intelligent, unique and well thought out. I find that his approach is often anarchical in approach. He's respectful of the generated generative outcome. So whatever the result is, he handles that with respect, with a certain level of exploration and curiosity, and what does this mean and what's the end result of that, which I feel delineates and showcases the ongoing collaborative result of a no-holds-barred creative, critical, radical rethinking process as applies to Buddhism itself sounds good this leads me on and it's not a direct it's not a direct link it's kind of like a, a somewhat partial causal link is that as i as i was writing this i found that i found myself thinking and as i read through the nascent speculative non-speculative non-buddhism i found that myself thinking that your radical identity and non-duality could be partially or specifically related to or influenced by glenn's work is that right
0: yeah for sure
1: it's not the only one though All of the latest writing
0: that I did over there, latest is in the last year and a half, I would suggest, is all influenced by Glenn's work. And I think it demonstrates my attempt to apply some of the aspects of the heuristic we'll be talking about. Uh, So thanks for noticing, Stuart.
1: Yeah, man. You're welcome. You're welcome. And one last thing before we roll on. I've got a number of quotes, and the ones that I've taken are ones that are more digestible. There's information in there in some of them, I find that if I don't understand it, there's going to be at least one other person that doesn't understand it as well. So the ones I've taken are are accessible and the ones that that use, there's one or two that use words that might not be in the everyday person's um, vocabulary or vernacular. And so, you know, I'll explain that when we get to it. But the one before we go on, Matthew, I think is is quite useful and maybe determining where we where we go. So Glenn said, with regards to Buddhism's current state of affairs, and this is really why we're a main theme, or vein of a theme that runs through this podcast, isn't it? Is is that a robust debate is taking place in the West concerning the status and relevance of traditional forms of Buddhism. In speech quotation marks, a wither Buddhism mood hangs over countless books, blogs and journals. Some argue that the details of how these new forms will distinguish themselves from more traditional forms are still being worked out. The heuristic, as you've mentioned, Matthew, reveals it does not matter. For in light of speculative non-Buddhism heuristics, all forms of ex-Buddhism, from the most scientifically covert, such as MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness, and the most progressively, agnostically, aesthetically, secularly liberal to the most religiously overt and conservatively orthodox, are the same. It's a
0: provocative phrase. We'll see if it bears true. Um, I think you could argue with that, and I think it's interesting to do that. I think rather than you know proving it right or wrong, I think the process of engaging with that critique is, is what produces something interesting and some interesting insight. We've said a bit, but perhaps we haven't really been as clear as we should be. What is speculative non-Buddhism? Well, it's a theory. There's a PDF and there's a section in the book that Stuart's mentioned, but just to make it very, very clear... The first text was a PDF document that came out in 2011. It's called Nascent Speculative Non-Buddhism, and then this was later expanded and developed in a section in one of Glenn's books, which was actually a collabor- collaboration with two other figures from the Speculative Non-Buddhism website, and it's called Cruel Theory Sublime Practice. A Glenn's chapter there, or section, so the title is speculative non-Buddhism, ex-Buddhist hallucination, and its decimation. Wow, that sounds very dramatic. We are working from both of those texts. We're obviously speaking from having had a personal experience of engaging with dialogue and debate over at the Speculative Non-Buddhism Project when that was still going strong. So we're working with those two texts. That's the basis of our material. And we're looking at a speculative non-Buddhism first as a theory, meaning a set of ideas that formulate into a theory of practice or a critique or a way of critiquing Buddhism. The second step is the heuristic. We've mentioned that word a few times and Stuart's going to define it now. Primarily, though, a method for critiquing Buddhism as ideology, which is why the uh, quote that Stuart just made is important, because part of what Glenn's illustrating in that statement about the sameness across all different forms of Buddhism, including, let's say, the more radical or more innovative forms that are occurring at the moment, is that. They can mutate as they may like, but unless they are aware of their own internal ideological structures, they are all playing the same game. And Glenn used to like to refer to that as playing with loaded dice. But Stuart, I think we've got to get on board with some definitions. Let's start off. Do you want to give us a definition of uh, heuristic?
1: Certainly, certainly. Now, with regards to the heuristic and with regards to the overall approach of of Glenn's work, firstly, it's adult and X-rated. Now, the X-rated, the X is an X-Buddhism, as you said, Matthew, it relates to all Buddhisms, regardless of flavor, regardless of taste, regardless of format and formulation, all are essentially the same. It's a transgression against transcendence. So these are themes that run throughout the heuristic. Because it's a transgression against transcendence, it... It helps to identify the decisional machinery of Buddhism or the underlying structures, the power structures, the created man-made structures that lie within Buddhism. And it moves on to rupture Buddhism in the, and in the process it creates an open source system. you said, Matthew, that it ignores the rules of fair play and can often appear aggressive in your notes. But so does life, right? On the note of Buddhism rarely self-critiquing or self-evaluating, there are three elements that you asked me to, to dig into with regards to the heuristic. You asked me to look at I- ideology, Meaning of speculative, and then moving on to what heuristic is. And thanks for bearing with this drawn-out explanation, listener. And thanks for bearing with us as we as we kind of define this. And what Glenn has done, and the wider speculative non-Buddhism work has done, is it's really mapped out. I don't think it's fully mapped out. I think there's a lot of potential within it, but it's really mapped out in a way that this subject that other people haven't. And it draws on a lot of other areas, like non-philosophy it really draws on a wide intellectual resource, traditional and current. With regards to ideology, it's, it's defined as a, a system of ideas and ideals, especially one which forms the basis of economic or political theory and policy. And as we know, religion is both political and economic in structure, right? Meaning of speculative, engaged in, expressing or based on conjecture rather than knowledge. In this case, The conjecture is both linear and nonlinear, and due to the nature of this nonlinearity, it breaks rules. I've understood speculative to be the what happens if we. An heuristic, in terms of definition, is enabling a person to discover or learn something for themselves. In computing, in terms of a computer heuristic, it's proceeding to a solution by trial and error or by rules that are often loosely defined. It's a hands on learning process. So in this case, I would say a heuristic isn't a theoretical practice. If you imagine an intuitive car mechanic or a creative engineer or or maybe a mad scientist, because it's the hands-on what happens if we, what does this button do approach, meaning that the heuristic relates to developing a framework of practical learning that is both theoretical and practical at the same time in terms of its scope and application. Another quote from Glenn here is, speculative non-Buddhism is a way of thinking and seeing that takes as its raw material Buddhism. It is a thought experiment that poses the question, shorn of its transcendental representations, what might Buddhism offer us? Speculative non-Buddhism is thus a critical practice. It's a critical practice. It relates back to what you were saying, Matthew, about the thinking this through, about taking this and working with it. And conceivably, a critical, constructive methodology could emerge from its ideas its way, its practice, its ideas, and though render Buddhism unrecognisable to itself.
0: What about ideology? Have you got a nice definition for
1: that? That was my definition for that. Have you got a definition for that, a further definition? Because I know ideology is one, of your, is one of your words that you like a lot. So when I think of ideology,
0: I think of like... In very, very basic terms, a container. It's a sort of self-contained system which has within it identities, uh, beliefs, um, ideas, practices. It has uh, a whole set of symbols and, let's say, prescribed elements which make up an apparent cohesive whole so when we talk about ideology, we, we're not, you know, just going back to Marx or something. We're looking at how we as human beings, we live within systems of meaning or social meaning or social cohesion. This is a way of seeing humanity or social human beings at the social level that's not been around that long. In fact, one of the, the reasons Buddhism has difficulty or is, is lacking certain, um, let's say, self-understanding, even though that's a strange way to talk about Buddhism as a thing, it's it's unsurprising because, you know, Buddhist philosophy, practice and its forms developed way before there was, you know, uh, let's say, a robust theory of collectivism or the collective experience of being existed on this planet. So that, that as a thought, as an awareness, as an understanding just wasn't around. What Glenn states throughout his work, is that Buddhism does not recognize itself as ideology, so it does not recognize its own internal mechanisms, and it's not able to critique itself at this level. So that's that's probably something I would add to what you just said.
1: Is, is that clear? Very n- and
0: nice. Stuart, we need a bit of light relief. I think so. Would you like a bit of light relief? I'd
1: love some light relief.
0: Okay, well, let's not start daytime drinking. Um, oh, I've, have, oh. No no British ale this morning? <laughs>
1: No, I have some good Scottish whiskey that's getting me through this podcast.
0: No cosmic, uh, cosmic input from your buddies down in Glastonbury. You want the cosmic input? Let's have this. So, Stuart, you just told me a nice story before we got going today. I think it's worth sharing.
1: Sure. I went down to Glastonbury, and as I was walking up the tour underneath a the tree, there there was a spread. Uh, this couple had a had spread out a tarpaulin, which is, and they had a number of of actually well illustrated cards that they put down to sell and there's a lot of foot traffic that goes up and down the tour there's a lot of tourists and people, what is the tour the tour it's a it's basically a hill i'm not sure what the definition is but it's it's a hill it's a big hill
0: i can help you there can you go on yeah you know i did not have a classical education but if you think about the italian word for tower it's torre
1: ah because there is a, there is a tower on the top this left on o- the top on this left over from the the church that used to be up there
0: that's right, but you're missing you're missing an important detail, Stuart. Important?
1: You're, to- you're, you're talking about
0: Avalon, yeah. not just Glastonbury. <laughs> the, the new age center of the universe. Heart, and the heart chakra of the world. <laughs> there you go, baby. <laughs> and you went there to get some of that love, didn't you? <laughs> Come on, admit yeah. it. Oh yeah, man. You flaky new age bum. <laughs> 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 but you forgot to mention that there are ley lines running underneath that big hill it's more than a hill it's basically a pilgrimage
1: spot from people from all over the world it is it's a pil- it's a pilgrimage spot i mean there is something about there is something about glastonbury you know there's something about sitting up on that tour it's got a fantastic view you can see for miles and miles can be somewhere cool to go and sit and think it also yeah. brings a lot of other stuff along with it yeah let me just i have to say one more thing to tie it back
0: to what we just discussing go on then if you think about ideologies containing a whole, containing a whole sort of symbolic network within the new age hippie ideology, Glastonbury tour is of mega importance
1: oh, yeah, it's cosmically,
0: yeah, cosmic talk about cosmic stuff go
1: on okay, so these this couple at the bottom of the tour that were selling their wares to the the large number of tourist foot traffic that goes up and down the tour, it's actually a pretty smart place to put what they were doing because people want to take home a souvenir. They want to take something home, something authentic home, especially from around another country. And there were some, there were some Italians at the top as well, Matthew, a lot of German people and, um, you know, people from all over the world there. And so this guy was talking within two or three minutes of talking. He was talking about the first time he ever saw a UFO, the first time it magically appeared. It was just in energy form and it was just there. Two or three minutes into this conversation doesn't happen in England. That doesn't happen in a regular everyday conversation. So he not, gave, not at the bank or the
0: post office.
1: No, that's right. You know, when, you, when you're in the queue to get... Deposit a check. Don't get the cashier going, hey, I saw the uh, I saw the I saw the Virgin Mother Mary, man. She just kind of came to me and she she showed her face in my cornflakes this morning. So he gave me this card. He gave me his business card. It's not a real business card. It's it's kind of looks like he's printed out a number of them on a piece of Aval paper and cut them with a pair of scissors. It says Ancient Adventures, a galactic experience guaranteed. Stonehenge, Avebury, Crop Circles, Tintagel, Merlin's Cave, etc. Call Ricardo on given phone number cosmic Ricardo at gmail.com galactic and ancient healing available matthew
0: not Wait, so, so when are you going? when are you going to meet up with uh ricky
1: <laughs> with cosmic ricky uh, i i uh this weekend man sunday i'm going to get some of that unspecified galactic and ancient healing I'm, I'm not sure what it is but it's available so i'm looking forward to it well after after appearing on
0: our world famous podcast he's gonna have a lot of success Send him send him love, man. Don't send him yeah. money, you know? There's, there's a serious point that could be made here, though. The, the mixing together of Buddhism with other sources of refuge, let's say. Thaumaturgical refuge. That's a big word we'll get to in a minute. Th- thoma- thaumaturgical refuge. That's the word, Jesus Christ. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pronoun- pronounce that. Thorm- with- thaumaturgical refuge. See, this is when Glenn comes on. He's going to go, nah, guys, come on. You know, that's not it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, he corrected me, I think, already on somebody's name. It was a French name. and A French person's about to come back again into the show, and I'm going to butcher his name as well.
1: Mr. Francois Leroyle. Laurie. Frank Laurie. (laughs) Fucking Laurie. (laughs) (laughs) Frank! (laughs) (laughs) But before
0: we get too stupid, let's do something... Slightly less stupid, but still stupid, damn it. <laughs> stupidity factor is high today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got to
1: be, come on, man. We're, we're two we're regular guys that look into this stuff because we find it interesting, because we find it relevant. We we do our best to make it as relevant as we can. But it has to be offset with a certain level of stupidity because the intellectual content is high. And if we just went, it's this, 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 and this, and therefore this, people would tune out. So we've got to keep people engaged. And it's, this is fun as well, you know, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. Thank you, for comforting our audience and making me feel you know like i could be stupid you can go ahead so if i'm going to be stupid let's, let's have a game show let's have a quick quiz okay you up for this i am okay so here's for a bit of controlled stupidity Stuart. you know that reading glenn's work means expanding your vocabulary yep. there's really no choice otherwise you just give up true. and that would that would be the wrong move that's what we're arguing today okay So let's have a big word list, and let's do a quick quiz. So I'm going to give you six words in total, and I'm just going to give you like three to four seconds to give me a synonym for each. Now, you should know these words, but the synonym is perhaps a little bit more challenging. The audience can also play, don't worry, don't worry, dear listener, due to magical powers that I recently developed with a Tibetan yogi in Brixton. I will hear you directly wherever you are and any time you play this game.
1: Just put your hands onto your laptop screen or your iPad, Android phone. And feel the words coming out of you
0: and arriving at the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right. You're never too late to play. So, you know, if you're listening to this a year after it was put online, don't worry, I'm still going to get the answers. The random winner will get the next podcast episode, Stuart, for free. For free? How about that? Generous. Generosity incarnate. And as an aside... If you are a member of a death metal band and you are looking for a name, each of these words could work. Could work, Stuart. (laughs) Seriously, these are the best death metal band names I've ever come across. Now, most of the words come from Latin, I believe. So here goes. Number one. Stuart, I've got the timer on. Um, Disenchantment. No. All right perplexity
1: perplexity okay
0: inclined to doubt all right you ready yes. the one that's difficult to pronounce thaumaturgy ah uh, magical marvelous yeah good you got that one now oh, this one's terrible a cataleptic
1: not not prophylactic <laughs> not prophylactic no <laughs> <laughs> Anna, means... Anaphylactic? Allergic to peanuts? Yeah.
0: <laughs> no. It means incapable of being understood.
1: Uh, or, All right. or, or,
0: or allergic to peanuts. <laughs> yeah, let's just chuck that into the dictionary. <laughs> Go for it, Samuel Johnson. Alright, the next one is is really... Come on, this is a great name for a death metal okay, band. Okay, okay. Vitiation.
1: Was that like... I have no clue.
0: To corrupt or make ineffective.
1: Which is what a death metal band does. It
0: corrupts your ears. It corrupts your good taste in music because death metal is awful. And <laughs> it's ineffective. I don't know why. Death metal's ineffective. There we go. <laughs> All right, next one. You ready? We've got two more. Effulgence. Losing me on these words, man. You really are. This is great. This is a brilliant, radiant, shining forth. Uh, you mean effluent? <sighs> no. effulgence effulgence Effulgence. that's the word probably pronounced incorrectly and i can't be bothered to look it up and the last one oracularity
1: oh that was with regards to um like an oracle
0: that's right so it means you know sort of giving out speech or saying things as if they come from special authority
1: yeah 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 so it's like yeah like you're saying like it's it's coming from an authority not bad Stuart. you got two i got
0: two yeah, considering you've read the work, you know, 15 million times, that's, right. I, guess, I guess our audience is screwed, isn't it? Yeah. So what's next? Let's get out of the stupidity seriously this time. Let's talk about the next topic, which is non-philosophy. So Glenn states that his work was inspired and informed by non-philosophy, but is not concomitant to it, meaning, he, you know, he's kind of done his own thing with it. Uh, Non-philosophy, though, rather like Glenn's work, is uh, an intellectual challenge. Uh, French philosophers, too, I don't know if you've read much by them. Um, I haven't, but the bits I have read, uh, they tend to have an interesting way of expressing themselves. It's very
1: complex, very rich. This is part of French culture. This is way more part of French culture than it is English culture. I really have the feeling that, that the world owes the French a debt of gratitude for the philosophy that they've come up with. It certainly gets downplayed at English education, in my experience. With, we start off with the Greek philosophers, which of course are, are key, but I think the French philosophers really are owed a debt of gratitude for the for the thinking they've done. They're not always right, but they've at least they've stepped out and they've they've really mm. pushed pushed that forwards.
0: They're creative in a way that many others are not. They have a sort of roundabout way of looking at things, which contrasts quite steeply with the sort of Anglo-American. Uh, philosophical tradition often defined as analytic uh, which just by its name you you know just tells you, you know, logic forward movement uh clear analysis and
1: Linear, one direction yeah. beginning end kind of thing yeah. yeah the french i
0: think the french are kind of like you know sort of uh, analytic philosophy on, on magic mushrooms This means that a lot of people turn off. Uh, People like Chomsky just say it's nonsense. And Chomsky is, you know, a great thinker, great guy, made wonderful contributions to critique of capitalism and so forth. But I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong on this. I think a good bit of French philosophy just blows your mind, and it is similar to taking drugs. Shall I try and pronounce Frankie's name properly?
1: Good old Frank. Yeah, please do. Oh, God, this is difficult. Francois. That's got to be right. Francois. Yeah, come on, Matthew. The listeners are on tenterhooks. L'Ariel. (laughs)
0: L'Ariel.
1: (laughs) L'Ariel. Did that work? I'm that
0: out. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. I feel like Steve Martin, you know, playing, playing the Pink Panther, you know, with his shit French accent. Oh, Not far off. Come on, this place. He developed a, what, he, what he defines as a science of philosophy. He's actually had about 20 books published and currently directs an institution dedicating to developing non-philosophy. Uh, here in the Anglo-American world, his work has been spread in great part due to the translation and efforts of Ray Brazier, Again, that should be French, but I give up. He's a proponent of speculative realism. Um, Ray himself is an interesting and challenging thinker and author, and certainly appears that the writers of the speculative non-Buddhism site were all influenced by him. Uh, he's actually also very critical of much of contemporary uh, philosophy for what he regards as his attempt to, and this is in quotes, to stave off the threat of nihilism. By safeguarding the experience of meaning, characterized as the defining feature of human existence, from the logic, enlightenment logic of disenchantment. Well, there you go. Uh, to get a sense of his work, actually, Stuart, you can just get the title of his most well-known book, which is *Nihil Unbound: Enlightenment
1: and Extinction*. Wow, that's happy bedtime reading for fans of the emo music scene. Cool, that's good. Philosophy doesn't like to discuss nihilism, in my in my understanding. I could be completely wrong there, but it avoids it. It doesn't want to talk about it. it may, maybe Frank's doing a job on that, you know. Well, if you're right, then that would be further avoidance of that unhappy ending that we started off with in the introduction. My, my yep. understanding from Dave Chapman's work, from what he says, it is that philosophy, as it rolls on since Nietzsche, nobody have really been able. Nobody's really been able to further that. Why I understand why Francois Laurel's work is pertinent is because he's also. Going beyond philosophy's limits, it seems that philosophy also has the same limits as religion or psychology or any established system of thought, and so it takes these these radicals, these renegades, these these mavericks to break out and come up come up with new systems. As far as I understand it,
0: for further exploration, well, let's have our uh, episode plug for Dave Chapman. You've mentioned him. He's uh, in the process of writing a rather interesting exploration of Robert Keegan's work on adult development, and he touches in on nihilism as he does. Um, as you must be well aware, Stuart, uh, nihilism is approached within Buddhism and it's seen as an extreme... I'll just make a few points about non-philosophy. I'm probably going to annoy any philosophical purist listening, but, you know, as I do with Buddhism, I, I don't really care. I think it's useful just to have a bit of background to understand where Glenn's work sort of catalyzed by.
1: Exactly. So Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's good. That's cool. That's very cool. All right, cool. so Laurel states that
0: All philosophy is structured around a decision. Uh, This word is crucial, so we might understand it initially as meaning a commitment and investment of belief. And with non-Buddhism, in particular, it's investment in an identity. Francois Laurel basically states that at the heart of all philosophical thought is decision. So it's a commitment to a position, and then everything structures itself around it. Uh, A more technical description which I got off of uh, his new introduction to non-philosophy defines it as a dialectical splitting of the world in order to grasp the world philosophically. So dualism here can be understand understood not as you know inherently bad, as spiritual folks are often you know want to frame it, but rather the process followed to gain perspective on sort of vast vista of human experience, or a means to situate ourselves in relationship to being, knowing, becoming, etc. So that's a dialectical split too. What he's saying is that uh, sorry, philosophy is unaware that it's doing this, and that's the problem. Laurel states that philosophy and philosophers are blind to this decision, does not recognize that such a commitment has been made, and this might be understood as systematic or ideological blindness, and it's kind of like saying the prisoner cannot see the bars and the guard. So, this sort of splitting that he describes is always taking place between these dialectical poles, and it compromises the challenge or conditions of being enmeshed in subject object orientation, and it also produces a gap at the same time. So, what does this mean? It's like saying, well, we're, you know, we're playing a game of football, we're doing it between the two goals, and those goals allow us to give context and meaning to the way we're looking, perceiving, but also experiencing, all right? And the, the confusion there would be to assume that there's nothing beyond the playing field that we're in.
1: That's, okay. th- that's interesting, uh, to, just to jump in there. Another analogy I I would take that as is um, in Carlos Castaneda's work, he talks about tabletop, doesn't he? He talks about the toenail and the nagual, doesn't he? Oh, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, and he says that the known is the tabletop and it's the shaman's job to go off of the tabletop and then bring stuff back. Nice. Nice. Did you get that nugget of wisdom
0: from Glastonbury Tour? Downloaded it while I was up there, yeah. The the one point that needs to be made, though, about ideology in general and identity and also about non-philosophy is that Um, There are gaps that take place within these two poles or these two goalposts or this tabletop, if you like, which is, you know, the the rest of of reality, if you like, or everything outside that playing field is kind of constantly revealing itself. And so what happens is actually a dual blind. The first thing is that we're aware of it, but we ignore it because our commitment to the tabletop or the football court or philosophy or Buddhism is so strong And so much of what we are depends on it. We actually establish both individually and collectively means or methods for ignoring it or translating it rather than seeing it. So if that gap appears and there's like a a lack of continuity or something about the great nugget of wisdom or the philosophical position doesn't quite add up, and that would actually be a form of this, this split taking place, what we will do is invent another philosophical line or we will come up with a dharmic explanation or we'll come up with some sort of behavior that allows us to excuse it, justify it, or seemingly integrate it into the tabletop or the playing field rather than actually recognize that reality is breaking through this game that we're enmeshed in. So hopefully that's a clear way of thinking about it. So what does non-philosophy do? It actually applies its methods to the decisional resistance to radical imminence. Radical imminence is a term we're going to see again when we talk about emptiness. Uh, radical imminence is quite complex Imminence actually relates to the discussion we had with Adrian Ivakev. Imminence is the opposite of transcendence. So immanence is everything is absolutely right here and real. So it's not about escape. Um, decisional resistance means that we resist looking at it, which is kind of what I just said, and we resist also being aware that we've actually made this commitment. That is, we're we're reluctant to admit it, to accept it, and to see it, and to see how that decision or that commitment to Buddhism Or to philosophy actually binds us to an inability to see clearly. All right. Now, if I've actually understood in its usage by Laurel and then Glenn, immanence here also means that there really does exist no transcendent principle. You can read that as no God, no gods, no saviors, no magical other worlds, no Buddha lands, no you know Chenrezig, you know, out there somewhere. There's no external cause to the world either process of life production is contained in life itself that's an interesting position some people will critique it feel free to do that decision can also be understood by introducing a third split which i refer to in my amateurish way as the third option you know so if you look at dichotomy we get stuck in is this that or is this is black and white thinking the third split would be to step outside the dualism duality but to step outside and to look at it very clearly from a proper distance. So you actually don't get into reaction to the position you're in. So, And what he argues for is the need to engage critically which is a a difference that many people have just missed, especially when they critiqued his work. You need to introduce a third split. A break from the dualistic entrapment of the dialectical opposition takes place. On an individual level, this means shifting out of identification with the dialectic. So it's like it's suspending it there. So if we use your analogy of the table, um, rather than looking under the table, it would be like you know sitting on one of those nice UFOs that Ricky talked about, floating above in your UFO and looking down at it and going, oh. Well, look at that. So you'd actually be able to see the table with the goalposts and the space in and around and under it. But you wouldn't go so far as that you can't see it anymore. Why would you do that? Because, well, if you're reacting to something, it's like in psychological processes, you often end up reproducing it at some later date because there's a lack of transparency about what it is that caused you to engage in that relationship in the first place. And psychologically, the recognition that decision actually um, pays a great deal. That is, you get a lot from it. As every good Buddhist knows, and every, let say, discontented Buddhist knows, it's difficult to leave the family home. It's difficult to leave the Buddhist family home. Because there's so much we get from it. It's the same issue with cults that we talked about. Alrighty. Tying it all together, last point. Laurel basically calls artificial dualities into question, pointing out that they are used as markers of reality. When they are not... He does so without abandoning them and with a concern to their claims of representing or defining accurately reality and or truth, and he says that they do this instead in an abusive manner.
1: It's quite a lot there. It is a lot I'm- there it kind of that last point kind of struck me as being hit by consensual reality, kind of like being hit with the stick of this is what it is, this is what it is," until you this is the way that it works. But if you've been taught that and you don't question it, then that, yeah, then that is the way that it works. But that doesn't mean that that's an actual realistic representation of reality, you know, does it?
0: Yeah, I think non-philosophy, just like non-Buddhism, is actually a door to freedom. It's immensely challenging, so most people won't engage with it, I don't think. In a sense, what he's doing is he's providing the thinking tools or ideational tools for becoming aware of how we enclose ourselves, or we enclose our thoughts, our feelings, and our practices, and our sense of who we are within ideologies, which are self-referential. That's the other problem with ideologies. Um, they generally refuse to engage with other ideologies, so that they see themselves as sufficient, as self-contained, as good enough, as containing everything you need. And, and Buddhism is extremely guilty of that, in spite of some of its claims. To round all this off, Stuart, to summarize a little bit, Buddhism has no articulation of ideology and therefore it has no real formulation of the collective formation of selves. Uh, Its focus on the individual and then the universal means it it is generally a religious practice of the self and for the self, which is partly why it fits so well with modern day capitalism. The basic premise is that Buddhists and Buddhism escape from reality. And that what stings in this is that Buddhism claims to be the opposite and actually introduce people to reality. The language of Buddhism, its syntax and rhetoric enforces and or strengthens the break from reality while simultaneously presenting itself as a new worldview, which it then says is what's real. So there is a sort of imaginative overlay onto the real. And as it's shared, it's an ideological world, but it believes it's the real and cannot see its own reflection because it confuses its reflective vision for the real thing. Decision towards Buddhism as a system of faith, as commitment, which you'll talk about in a minute, minute, and Buddhism as a thaumaturgical refuge, as a Buddhistic understanding of the world, ends up being a filter that evolves into an sort of inculcated worldview in which Buddhism is reproduced as a system. How does that
1: sound? Sounds good. You covered a lot there. You covered a lot there. And this is a short piece with regards to, you said it was decisional, but if it's decisional, if you're looking at a decisional structure, then there are certain decisions that are made within thinking, whether whether that's just taken on, like drinking the Kool-Aid and kind of just taking that in, or whether with regards to when you later realize that it's actually that you've taken on an identity with regards to that, that you've taken something on that then the decision becomes apparent of what you do, and they just kind of go, oh, there's a gap there, someone's nicely plastered over that, or they've placed a piece of furniture in the way that, that means that you can't fully see the structure of reality around you. And with regards to reality, it's all a model. There's just too much stuff going on within reality to be able to understand everything. It seems that the progress or the evolution of ideas, the evolution of understanding this, and, and the way of boiling this down to its essence is a way of consistently breaking with the moulds of what we consider to be reality. And so with regards to exit in the Buddhist identity, it's important to dismantle the underlying structures within Buddhism because there is decisional machinery within Buddhism, and it needs to be identified in terms of its both its purpose and its usefulness. This comparative purpose and usefulness determines what resultant outcomes are useful for the 21st century and in the 21st century because systemic Buddhism, because systemic Buddhist identity often kills, halts, stifles creative exploration because it's blinding and glenn said this quite specifically and to quote he says buddhists qua buddhists moreover are incapable of discerning the decisional structure that informs their affiliation because importantly admittance to affiliation ensues from a blinding condition which glenn calls reflexivity um so this systemic blinding causes buddhism to be overrun right and to be overrun specifically by the science and the humanities, which culturally hold it within context as subject matter, which means that Buddhism then has to come up with counter-argument with regards to this. Well, why can't everything be with on, a, on, a, on a level playing field? Why can't everything, as these guys refer to the Great Feast, why can't Buddhism currently play within that? Because it considers itself to be an oracle. It considers itself to be magical. And complete. And complete, exactly. So... This is the last quote, and it's a short quote. This decisional circularity of working within a continuous circuit, or what Lorel calls, and this, this refers back to what you said, Matthew, or what L'Oreal calls auto-position, constitutes Buddhism's specularity. That is the state, as you also said, Matthew, without knowing that I was going to say this, the state of resembling a mirror. Buddhistic decision renders Buddhism a world-conquering juggernaut from which nothing can escape. As passengers, Buddhists of all varieties, as those who possess reflexive, or as we said before, blind commitment to Buddhistic decision, are granted perspicuous—that is, clearly expressed and easily understood or lucid knowing of all exigent, pressing, or de- demanding matters related to human being. So to essentialize that. It holds itself as the all-knowing, all-answering solution. And I think in some ways, it's it's very much sold as that. If, if not overtly, then certainly covertly. When you go yeah. into reading it, it says, you know, the Buddha did this and came up with these answers. You know, he came up with the Four Noble Truths, he came up with blah, 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 blah. blah and he just did all of that stuff, right? So we know and and it's got this gospel of course yeah 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 it's totally gospel i mean that's how it's marketed this how this man-made ideology this man-made system this man-made structure is marketed yeah you know and so it's even though it holds as its core as a core fundamental building block within it to identify i mean buddhists throw this around and we talk about um the language of the, the quote-unquote Buddhists use is that the Buddha said, you know, we're told that the Buddha said, don't take what I say as, as the truth, don't take what I say as the gospel, question everything for yourself. Well, you, you're not taught to question everything for yourself within traditional Buddhism. It said, hey, this is a beginning, and then take everything that we say after this as, as the truth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it comes back to what I
1: said about the Tibetan contemplation
0: activity, that you, you can think, but think within these bounds, within this dialectical split. There we go. Come back to the big words.
1: Yeah, no, we're going that on should... to, We are actually going on to big words, but yeah, go on, mate.
0: Well, I, I, there's one point worth mentioning, which is I, ideology again, but ideology is a non-option In the sense that we are always within ideologies and this is a point that was discussed ad nauseum over at the speculative non-buddhism site because people struggle with it specifically because it comes up against or challenges the notion of non-dual perspective or naked perception and so forth so what we see there is that you know our senses our five senses do not interpret the full spectrum of reality uh, it's very basic just to say for example we do not see what a bat does or a cat for that matter and you know there's there's much we don't see in the here and so forth omniscience obviously is a laughable concept so what does that imply it implies actually that the idea of truly pure perception and experience doesn't exist so what what glenn and co argued is or argued they, they pointed out because it's it's just simply the way it is oops <laughs> is that you're always within some ideology but what you can do is change ideology you can change the ideology the ideologies that are let's say available i think if you're a modern day western buddhist and you've got a few years behind you i actually feel that your job actually is to act on buddhism if you take any of this stuff seriously if you're a sort of part-time buddhist or you're a vacationing buddhist as i like to think you know a weekend, where you just do a weekend warrior or we can war, you know, you just do these practices to basically make yourself feel better or to manage your life and anxiety, which, hey, you know, just to be clear, don't have a problem with that. That's fine. As long as you're honest about that, that's what you're doing, no problem. If you're actually dedicated to the Buddhist program, if you actually take seriously some of the initial propositions of Buddhism, that you know they're very radical propositions as we've said before they go beyond self-help sort of nullifying the negative effects of of modern day living they involve you know very radical concepts of freedom and perception and you know letting go of the idea of continuity and and dealing with our you know all to uh, real humanity and so forth and The point being that if you act on Buddhism, then you're starting to act on the ideology. If you only do that within the ideology without being aware of it, without stepping outside, as both Laurel and now Wallace have suggested, you're actually not really doing anything. You're just moving pieces around or you're changing the flavor of the cocktail or, you know, the soup. But the soup and the cocktail pretty much are exactly the same as they were before.
1: Or shifting furniture around
0: the room, you know. Or, Or that one there. So... The point being is that you can change ideology, but you need to be aware of it first of all, and you need to stop making excuses. A lot of people, they react to this material by going to self-defense and asserting their position. Well, all people in all di ideologies do that, and that's a very clear signal that a person is actually caught up in what we, we've described as decision. They're caught up in their commitment. They're not able actually to loosen the binds and the security or the good feelings or stability or certainty that being embedded to that ideolo- ideology actually provide. But we see from the bigger perspectives that, you know, people acted on Marxism and communism. They acted on it. Communism changed and eventually it fell apart. People act on capitalism. You know, the people, that, the top 0.1% are constantly acting on capitalism but they're trying to keep the narrative going. You know, we can act against that too. And one of the problems is when you accept things as given, that is given by God, if we go back to the Christianity issue, then you resign yourself to them. You're a passive receiver of these things. The idea of this work, and specifically the heuristic steps we're going to look at in part, is that they give you the ability to break from the identification, step outside, look critically, and actually start to do something with it, which at the end of the day... In spite of the criticisms, that's what Glenn wants.
1: Cool, cool. I like that. You you brought up some really good points there, and some that triggered off my thinking and triggered off um, some interesting insights as you went through that. Now, one of the things is the the Christian, what's it, the Christian narrative that we have within our within our society. We're not we're told that within Christianity we need an an intermediary to liaise between ourselves and God. If we really want to talk to God, if we want to be absolved of our sins, whatever the fuck that means, then we need a, a priest, we need a vicar, we need the Pope, we need whoever to be able to, to mediate, con- to conduct that communication. We don't have direct access as, a, as as a system. And I think Buddhism kind of takes that on in some ways, like we are not allowed to think or critique or wonder or speculate or look at or observe or understand or experience exactly what it is that we're working with here. What I see is what Glenn has done is he's taken that off the table when he's literally just dumped a big chunk of it in our lap and gone, hey, look at this, and in a way has transitioned that and, and gone, look, hey, you can work on this. Another point that you brought up there was the relevance and the commitment. And this has come up with regard to the work that we do on the podcast here for me as well is that you can't just take Glenn's work and the speculative non-Buddhist work and work of other notable people that we've had onto this podcast you can't just take this material and just dump it in somebody's lap who has no exposure to to Buddhism or has no exposure to deeper or wider vistas of of thought and experience and understanding and experimentation and say hey what do you reckon what do you think of this you need an entry point where do you peg yourself within this? Is it cool just to go, well, i got to go on, on weekend retreats and, and, and just get some feel-good out of this stuff? Okay, we need more of that in the world, right? But, you know, is, is that what this is about? What is your commitment to the work? How do we make this relevant? Really, I see it as a, as a core group of people that are going, people that are more intelligent than me and, and more committed within their very specific fields. I can't read Pali. I don't know Sanskrit. I can't read Tibetan. So it takes people that have this knowledge to be able to go, look, this is this. And then it's after that, it's other people that pick this this kind of stuff up, like me and you, Matthew, and we work with it. And then it goes on from there. There is a cultural relevance to this material, but certainly we can't expect everybody to engage with what Glenn's done. I think that that's obvious. So those are the points that came up for me. I rambled a bit, but there you go.
0: The Imperfect Buddha Podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Get a grip on your spiritual life. If you're a Buddhist ex-Buddhist, bored Buddhist or spiritually undefined but curious I might be able to help if you're stuck in a rut, need to re-evaluate or make sense of practice without the bullshit. I work in person in Italy and through Skype worldwide. You can find out more by visiting oconnellcoaching.com or follow the link at the Post-Traditional Buddhism website.
1: Now that, Matthew, that is a funky advert. <laughs> and it raises some questions. It raises some questions. How did it, how did it work, mate? Are you, getting, are you getting more clients from this podcast now? Well, you know, I hate the word
0: client. I, I never see this stuff as overtly business. They are humans after all, Stuart. Even, you know, those who are lost in ideology. Um, some humans did get in touch for coaching after the ad.
1: Do you think they're getting out anything out of working with you?
0: Well, you'd have to ask them, but, you know, I always start out by saying, let's meet and see whether we should work together or not. So, but really, they do the work. In fact, Stuart, coaching is a great job for lazy people because they pay you, and then they do all the work. I could unwittingly be a con artist, kind of like most New Age teachers. Uh, maybe I should become the next Eckhart Tolle.
1: Or John writer I just need a chihuahua. Has he got one? Oh, I had to spell it, I had to spell it, I had to spell it. You had to it. spell it on the
0: Colts episode. Going running circles here. This is part two anyway. Let me this is, say that this, again. This, this, part this is, two. This is decisional circularity right here, Matt. So this is where we get stuck into the heuristic. Like I said before, when we started sort of hinting at some of this stuff, you should see these points as potential contemplation topics. And I actually think the contemplation could be defined, you know, as a sort of meeting point between intellect and intuition. Now, there are 37 items. There's no way we can do all these today. It would bore the hell out of you. We've indirectly covered quite a few of them in our discussion so far. So we've picked out a few key ones just to give you a bit of flavor. And again, we suggest you go off and, and work with the others. Stuart, where do you think we should begin?
1: At the beginning.
0: <laughs> which means I have to talk about Buddhism and Buddhist.
1: No, I've got... Um, You've got an A. I've got Anchoric, anchoric Loss and Apparatic Dissonance. The Apparatic, oh, which I clearly well, failed in the... Uh,
0: good in that test you gave me You did even though you wrote it down you dummy well hold on there's one more no. thing to say sorry right. just to give context it's really good to remember that these are part of a theoretical model so although stu and i are pushing them as practical contemplative points or topics you could work with they do sort of chart an idealized image as all theoretical models do you know many of the flesh and blood humans listening will likely find some of these these points or topics a little bit extreme and not at all accurate i would suggest that as with all ideologies, people are more or less seduced into playing out some of these these items. I think it would be a mistake to take any of it too personally, defend yourself from it through justification, or ignore their existence, or thirdly, assume you have never fallen prey to any of these faults. I haven't. Topics. Okay, thank you. And I would really recommend not viewing this as a wholly cynical work. It's not. Glenn's quite clear about the language choices he makes. And he's opposing much of what passes for nice and normal Buddhism. That's great.
1: Let's start off. Which one are you going for, first of all? Aporetic? Anchoric loss and aporetic dissonance. Go for it. What's that all about? So that's otherwise known as disenchantment. And this happens because it becomes apparent that Buddhism does not have all the answers. That The group isn't developing, evolving, or thinking for themselves or itself. And one of the things that frustrates me more than anything is the answers... In talks or workshops or retreats are any of these, all of these, or partially some of these canned, safe, in some way limited or closed, and based around the same theme. You know, like it's an ongoing theme that just continues and continues and continues, and you can put up your hand and go... Uh, what about nature of mind? And then they kind of go, oh, well, we'll discuss that a little bit later. And then the theme just continues. And there's no real discussion or exploration. Of course, that can't happen in a workshop that's got 24 people and they've got questions from different things. So, you know, you've got to stay on topic, right? But like a real answer would be useful every once in a while. In you know? So that's, for me, was was what reflected anchoric loss and aporetic dissonance is.
0: And the next is buddings. Well, hold on. Before you go on to that, how would a person experience the two you've just described
1: frustration annoyance anger uh fuck this those kinds of reactions feeling lied to this doesn't work for me what is this system um this doesn't fit with my life i'm not getting the answers i need how do I do with my relationships with this? How am I supposed to show up in the world if they're just giving me these basic goodness answers? Everything, you know, for a Shambhalian thing is, is one of the things that everything is basically good. Is it really? Is that even questioned? No, it's not. So, and I'm not getting that axe out, you know? <laughs> yeah, please don't. We've had enough <laughs> yeah, of that one. No, I've, I've Put it back in the cupboard. It's, it's, it's in the, you know, like I've got an axe holder. That word dissonance though,
0: I mean, I think the way he describes it or well, the mm-hmm. way I think of it, mm-hmm. both perhaps maybe I'm making it up, is it's, it's really like felt in the body, felt in the body, Glenn.
1: Yeah, like it's an emotion.
0: Laurel doesn't describe it in such terms, but Glenn does. He, you know, he calls it affective, which just means feeling or emotional. Yeah, I think a lot of people have probably had this feeling, especially the smarter folks who like to think and who are independent of thought. You sat on a cushion and some you know, teachers sat there just quoting whatever, and you're like, mm, doesn't quite feel right. But in order to get to the degree that you would actually start breaking from Buddhism, it would have to become quite intense.
1: With regards to Buddhism becoming unrecognisable to itself, raises the question of what is the relevance of Buddhism? And also again, back to the same theme, what is the person's commitment to Buddhism? When a person hits this, I see, is that if they continue with Buddhism in whatever way, shape or form, first they have to understand or see or experience that there is a way to be able to move into evolving or moving on with it. If they're sufficiently committed you know without rambling on they have to feel that there's some kind of a link some kind of relevance some kind of value that it brings to their life and so that's kind of the only way to kind of get past it otherwise just go through your hands and be like, this is nonsense this teacher doesn't answer my questions the Buddha doesn't know everything he's 2500 years ago you know clearly he didn't even have the internet you know there wasn't all the time, you know, there wasn't <laughs> no, even no, Facebook it didn't have Facebook. I don't know a thing before. didn't know how to tweet a Fucking thing, you know what I mean? So. <laughs> <laughs> and if he did, it was going to be more than 144 characters. That's right. And I can't read Sanskrit. So, well, how is that even relevant? Okay. So, the next one is Budims. I don't feel that this really needs much explanation or explication. It's pretty straightforward. It's, as you've called it before, Matthew, it's the use of Buddha speak inside terminology, um the mixture, obviously, of Buddha and memes to come up with a, a fresh new word. I think there's much more needed on that, Matthew. What's next? All right, so Buddhism is that
0: impulse also to just uh, use the buzzwords in the new community that you've become part of,
1: right? Ma- making it a part of your identity, and you've spoken about that in a past podcast, haven't you?
0: Well, should we jump on to Buddhism and then Buddhist? Okay. All right, so Glenn states that Buddhism aims implicitly and explicitly to form particular types of subjects in its own image. Uh, so it's essentially viewed as, viewed as an ideological system, that rests on the concept of decision. Uh, institutionally Buddhism refers to the manufacture and conservation of spiritual charisma. Charism is another funny word.
1: It's like kind of like charisma. I'm not sure how to pronounce that personally.
0: Yeah, I presume
1: it's charism, but there we go. Okay.
0: So what, what my understanding of this is that Buddhism sort of it builds and maintains a range of seductive images of itself, and one of those as I started off with this podcast episode is this, this idea of salvation from the ego with the self. And, of course, it sells itself as the ultimate source of knowledge, wisdom and dharma. It's the idea is that those things are not just present, but that they are seductive and wonderful and juicy and tasty. And you want to purchase them on today's modern marketplace. I do. Well, you did, didn't you?
1: I did. You did. I both have. did. I have. I will. We
0: both I did like. a lot of this. Yes. Think of all those and Trungpa books we bought. We both bought the same bloody stuff. It's about of living and dying. There we go. Nice, nice classic, that classic piece of... Made up fiction. Hey. (laughs) Written by a ghost author. (coughs) (coughs) uh,
1: uh, Stop Stop
0: it. Buddhism done. Buddhist, Buddhist. What's a Buddhist? Well, obviously a person who is committed to Buddhism and the Buddhist narrative about the world and to the notion that it can provide refuge, in this case, from the real, from reality, and direction as prescribed by the Dharma, and salvation as in escape from our mundane flesh and blood reality and existence. A good Buddhist is a reproducer of the ideological network that is Buddhism, consisting of the Budims. And you can usually pick it up by actually paying attention to how people speak, what they wear, even the way they move their body. You know, Stuart, I mean, this is part of it, isn't it? You know, the bowing, the false humility, uh, you know, the position of the hands into the prayer, um, mount mudra, whatever it is. Typically, though, most Buddhists who are committed to this whole thing They're unaware of identity formation that's taking place within Buddhism, and they are blind to it. Okay. part of the problem with Buddhism is that because it's primarily seen as benign and as good, the idea of critiquing it is also less less appealing. And the idea that somehow it would rebirth you as this sort of sort of in this false image of itself doesn't doesn't quite sit with people.
1: Um, what's next? So the next one is uh, specular oric- oracute- see These words are just tongue twisters sometimes. And then you read them and go, oh, I know what that means, and then not know what it means. So specular oracularity, you know, I read specular and I think of speculative and it's not. And I think of oracularity and I think of an eye. So specular is relating to or having the properties of a mirror, which we discussed earlier. And oracular is resembling the characteristic of an oracle. Qualities of this are solemnly prophetic you know like there's no humor this gets laid down by the person who says you know this is the way that it is nobody questions it enigmatic and uh also obscure and quality so like you could you know you could get an answer that makes no sense and then just go, oh wow man that was so profound i didn't understand a fucking word i have no idea how to apply it in my life it means absolutely nothing to me i'm gonna go and reflect on that for 20 years and get nothing back from it you know that kind of thing <laughs> so i see the, the, the famous vacuous profundity exactly exactly because it's empty mate he says it's empty yeah everything's empty and he said so much it must be even more profound because it made even less sense i see specular ocular oh, i see i want to say ocularity like an eye i see just call s- it the specchio <laughs> the specchio the s-o <laughs> the s-o specchio <laughs> sounds like a bad italian name <laughs> I speak you ah. <laughs> How are you you geek <laughs> I see specular oracularity as being likened to the mirror in Snow White. I don't know if this was ever said this on the on the on the SMB site, but I see it as being likened to the mirror in Snow White. The creation of a closed loop of communication that seems to provide all answers, which potentially makes mindlessly engaging with Buddhism both misguided and narcissistic without that level of question questioning because it's a it's a closed loop. nice that's how i say that sounds very cool i think you've summed that one up rather nicely well done
0: i I think this is this is a first for the the podcast
1: i am (laughs) breaking ground (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: yeah thanks well you know you you know what's nice about what you just said though again it's that passive nature of the buddhist relationship with the wise teacher and dharma uh, as perfect right it's passive it's so bloody passive Perhaps that passiveness is what, uh, you know, sort of evokes Glenn's ire, you know. Yeah, his rage and his anarchistic spirit, yeah. Cancellation of warrant is the next one. This essentially means that you're breaking the game. So if we go back to the analogy of the football pitch on top of the table, it means you just stop playing. It's broken. You know, the ball flies off the pitch and no one kicks that bugger back. Uh, It also means suspending one's role as a good, faithful Buddhist, faithful in this sense, as in blind faith. Uh, So as a person who maintains Buddhism and the decisional structure of obedience to ideology, you stop. You say no more. And you cease to see Buddhism as complete, the real truth, the big final answer. You start to see it as man-made, as human. And uh, you start to find out, oddly enough, that much of what we're discussing today starts to make more sense, which comes back to the point you expressed before, Stuart, that this sort of work is for grown-ups and is for people who've been involved with Buddhism for a long time. But we could actually probably be doing this for any form of Eastern spirituality, don't you think?
1: I do think, yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, we, we could change, change all the Buddhist stuff for Hinduism. Shamanism as well, I reckon. Shamanism probably works, although it's not so well institutionalized. But certainly it would fit Christianity, actually, and Islam and Judaism too,
1: right? I mean, it's forbidden, a... Forbidden territory.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that one. Um, finally, Buddhism loses its charm, really. One of the ways that this often happens, to mention Sogyal again, bad gurus are often very good at initiating this process. Again, it has to be said, it's amazing how many people, even in spite of those things, keep going with the game. That's a very, very strong ideological commitment. Okay, have
1: you got another one? I do have that magical one. The thaumaturgical Refuge, which is from the Greek thaumaturgy, thauma meaning miracle or marvel, and Ergon meaning work. So this could be likened to a magician or a saint and the working of magic and miracles and that this would then be inherent to the universe of that occupies in this case the buddha or or systemic buddhism Tomaturgical refuge then is the process of taking refuge in a magical system of thought or a system that's perceived to be that and therefore complete in its own quote-unquote enlightened perfection right okay empty reality how do i empty reality
0: well oh, that's that's a really that's like a cohen
1: like a like a leonard cohen
0: Well, then it comes to Buddhist, man, this is all this is like hippie shit. It's all tied together.
1: It is. It is. Oh, uh, side note advert. Check out Glenn's punk band Ruin. Check out the cover of White Rabbit that they've done as we go deeper down the rabbit hole as Matthew goes on to the next. There's a really nice
0: point that Glenn makes. He says that Buddhism stylizes emptiness. That's just great. I love that phrase. It stylizes emptiness. It overwrites what it names, therefore making it invisible.
1: Wow, that's profound. I don't understand that. Are you serious? Well, what is it? What, what could that mean? What are the What are the examples of that? How is that concrete? Well,
0: think of any nice Buddhist term for describing emptiness. Lucid, luminous, lumin- luminous, good. Don't forget that good word. The basic, benevolent. It's
1: basically good, right? And because we
0: are part of it, this is really really important. I think this point. But I should just chuck in a few more words that come from his work. One way of looking at it, though, is simply emptiness without the bells and whistles. Really, like emptiness is in really a lack of something. He redefines it as radical immanence. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about my own experiences with this, Stuart, um, and how practice, meditation practices actually invoke experience. So we often think of meditation loosely as pointing towards reality or introducing us to the true nature of things. But I would suggest, and I think Glenn would, would too, that practices actually invoke specific experiences rather like the concentration states do, and I think the way that emptiness is defined by the tradition that you're part of, and the way it's sort of couched or wrapped in you know, a certain dialogue or story or narrative, that actually can't help but produce expectations in the practitioner, Something very subtle, Though the positive ways of reframing emptiness as something that actually is alive and positive and so forth is a very common practice across different forms of Buddhism, and so it's a feature of the ideological apparatus, but uh, so I had this experience, I was sitting in meditation uh, a couple of years back, you know, I was invoking, invoking, I, I didn't think of it then, but I do now. I was invoking this extremely positive, blissful state of feeling unified with raw sensations in my body. And I was sat there, you know, for what, 20 minutes or half an hour or something. And at some point, something just was niggling at me, you know, like, like an itch somewhere. And I looked at this as best as you can, this, this sort of bubble, or this feeling state I created for myself, you know, where the mind was extremely quiet and it really was genuinely blissful. And I looked at it and I thought, there's something not quite right here. <laughs> so, you know, I, well, what's not quite right here? Chuck that question in there. And I looked and it was like something cracked and this nice, cozy bubble fell apart. And it was like sobering up after being drunk. There was a simplicity and sobriety to the experience. Our reality became sharper, let's say, we want to call it that, more simplistic. But I think in a sense that might be, although it's a personal anecdote, a relatively useful analogy for understanding. Radical imminence is really bringing us back to the point where there is no fluff, there's no flavor, there's no reward. And I think that's that's the point. Often in meditation practice, emptiness is placed out like the carrot for the donkey. You know, you get to emptiness, you're going to wake up, you're going to be enlightened, you're going to be free, you're going to see the truth of things. That's the carrot. Actually emptiness, in essence, is disappointment. <laughs>
1: That's, that's cool. That's That reflects back um, the creative, intelligent use of language here because radical, is it radic- radical imminence? Yeah. Is that what it is? Radical imminence. What's imminent? Imminent, isn't it? It's imminent. It's going to have, it's like an inevit- there's an inevitability to it. So radically imminent. E- if emptiness would do that, then cool. Because emptiness is it's another one of those buzzwords isn't it it's what is yeah. it you know what is it
0: what is it exactly
1: well you know and then we get a lot
0: of ineffable answers and when you get those ineffable answers you know what you almost always get do you know what you get Stuart? what do you get B- bullshit it- you get smugness yeah 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 i'm thinking about those nice neo-advaita teachers who are just smug
1: yeah i can i could name one or two people i'm sure the listeners can evoke you know and imagine one or two examples of that themselves as well because if they know it
0: if they know that special magical thaumaturgical refuge that you spoke about before and they're there and you're not you haven't
1: got it and they have they've been on that, they been on that are three They are smuggers. Smugglers, smugglers, smuggers. 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 Which, is, which is what? Which is what? Like smug, smug muggers? Smug muggers. <laughs> <laughs> but they're mugging your intelligence, aren't they? They're mugging you up in a way.
0: As they yeah, are mugging, yeah. they're mugging something. It's part of that whole sort of collaboration between, you know, capitalism as the sale of goods and the advertising of attractive baubles ball that you've got to have. And then the disappointment that comes once you've, you've got it and you realize it's, it's made in China. And made of plastic,
1: Um, and it fell apart when your
0: three-year-old child
1: played with it. It
0: fell apart unless you're stuck in the ideological bubble, and then you're all maintaining, you're all, you're all facilitating each other's addiction to hanging out in those spaces, which is another reason why spiritual folks rarely engage with the real world outside their spiritual bubbles. Phenomenologically, Stuart, I will offer something kind back towards those who do engage with practices and do get some of that blissful experience, which is at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with hanging out in bliss. I mean, life's not so easy, let's be honest. And as an alternative to drink or drugs, why not? Why not? I think it's just about being honest with yourself, and that's what it comes down to. But phenomenologically, there's a lot going on in one's relationship with the idea of emptiness within meditation practice, within Buddhism. There's a lot going on. And I think phenomenologically, there's a lot of interesting exploration and discussion that could go on. I think it would be much more interesting and much richer if people dropped all of the, the, the etiquette, as they say in Italian, all of the, the sort of prefabricated labels that they attach to these things. And we just sort of stole away some of their added shine and sale value and just said, OK, all right. So you're experiencing this bliss. You know, let's, let's cut the crap. Let's drop the discourse and let's just say it has no value apart from exactly what you're experiencing. Let's talk about that and see what we can do with all this. That takes us on to the next point. What's yours?
1: Ventriloquism. Go for it. Okay, so from Wikipedia, I thought this Wikipedia quote was pinpointed, it summed it up nicely. Ventriloquism or ventriloquy is an act of stagecraft in which a person changes his or her voice so that it appears that the voice is coming from elsewhere, usually a puppeted dummy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I thought, oh, wow, that sounds all right. Okay, interesting. So, from the, from, and a quote from Glenn evidence of ventriloquism is the predictable iteration of buddhims in everything from Canock. Canono, cano karaoke. Canonical canonical literature to Dharma talks and blog posts. So this can show up as the undigested communication of second or even worse third-hand knowledge as an undisputed truth. You covered that just now, Matthew. Of people having no real useful or examined experience of their own. Of having no contextual, contextually objective handle on what's actually going on. <laughs> groups that speak in code and that ties back to the buddhims that we closes that loop that we opened earlier so that i see that as a really core piece if you imagine a buddhist identity as being comprised of pieces of a puzzle that are dismantleable they can be taken out they can be cleaned they be upgraded and then put back in and that changes the decisional machinery of what you're working with if you imagine it in that way then i would see ventriloquism or i would experience ventriloquism as being a very key part of that Because that determines what you can say. Well, it brings us
0: back to all forms of ideological entrapment. It starts with critical thinking and trying to think for yourself and putting in the effort to do so, which, of course, many people don't want to do.
1: That's right, because it's uncomfortable. Uh,
0: Well, it also takes effort, let's be honest. It takes effort.
1: That effort, that effort in itself goes antithetical to people like to codify things. They like to look at it, understand it, and say, well, that's what it is, and then never go back and revisit. And that's part of human nature. And to go back and to re-examine that is inherently uncomfortable. It goes against the survival instinct. And maybe a topic for another show, Matthew, is how this work actually challenges that. All right,
0: Stuart, I've got two more to round off this uh, part two of the show. So the next one is principle of sufficient Buddhism. To sum this up, because we've touched on it already, the idea that Buddhism provides a unitary vision of reality. Buddhism is the answer as complete, providing all you need, thinking, living, liberation, successful life, girlfriend advice, redecorating advice. Uh, All that remains is for us to live up to its standards, be good enough Buddhist, and recreate yourself in the image of the Buddha. The principle of sufficient Buddhism only works if you avoid looking at the real world and experiencing it as it is. It only sits if you avoid seeing the totality of what's taking place. It also only works if you discourage other arenas of thought. Or or worse, and this is where it gets really sticky, you co-opt other areas of thought in order to prove your Buddhist position to be right. Which, of course, we see with the justification of everything mindfulness through science and so
1: forth interesting interesting now the difficulty i had with buddhism before with traditional structured buddhism is that it kind of excluded what was going on in fields of psychology philosophy you know we're going back a number of years that it didn't take them on i wasn't encouraged to read those books i had to kind of put that knowledge to one side and meditation will answer everything just sit enough and you'll get the answers you'll get that in which is a problem because you then kind of you end up in like a walled garden and you can't experiment or or experience anything else and therefore, you kind of might have problems in relationships, or you might have problems with regards to relating to your job, or you might have problems with regards to, to, to making money or saving or whatever, because that system doesn't encourage additional learning. And you, everybody has gaps in their life that they need, they can, not upgrade, but they can learn from other areas of knowledge. And we have to as human beings. We're, we're a spectrum of, of experience, and we're a spectrum of understanding and knowledge and, and and additionally wisdom that comes on in time, right? Some of that's inherent. A lot of it has to be learned. So much of what we are as people is learned, but then to say to co-opt it, to additionally co-opt material so that it for it, it feeds this juggernaut—that's that's that's even worse of a problem. Because then the, the structural material becomes invisible. We can't actually identify what it is.
0: is this illustrates the sophistication of the ideological structure, mm-hmm. and it's what makes it so difficult for many intelligent Western Buddhists to see what Glenn has been pointing out, you know because it's so easy to co-opt technology or science or psychology, or even brain scan. Yeah, brain scans being the big one. That's a very superficial reading of philosophy. And finally, Stuart, the principle of sufficient Buddhism means that Buddhists generally will avoid criticism of Buddhism or they'll react to them with justification for their position. Okay. So what we know about learning, what we know about critical thinking is uh, all of those positions are fundamentally problematic. Hence, what we have as a result, and which is the title of the, the second text on this topic by Glenn, is hallucination. That is, if you are trapped within the ideal of sufficient Buddhism, you are not able to see the world, engage with it effectively, and therefore you are enacting your life within an hallucination. The last one, Stuart. We should finish with this one, really. The devitalization of charism. So what is this? Well, this is really where things get going. Uh, we talked about apparatic dissonance, or rather disenchantment. Uh, the next one is actually to see through the magical, mystical, appealing nature of Buddhism and its uh, symbolic forms, whether language, customs, networks of meaning, whatever, whatever, dharma halls, etc. The seductive items of Buddhism as otherworldly magical or possessing some indefinable, mysterious quality to revere is lost. The seductive power is gone. The identity of the individual as a Buddhist starts to feel claustrophobic or false rather
1: than comforting or
0: liberating. Stuart, I think we've covered enough of the heuristic. What'd you what'd you say? I think so. I think
1: we've we've done a decent job on that.
0: All right, Stuart, let's finish off with a few bits and pieces. The first thing to address, I would suggest, are criticisms that took place of Glenn's work. Most of those criticisms, at least in the public sphere, took place the speculative non-Buddhism site. Most of the people that made the criticisms there probably did not read Glenn's PDF document. That's my, my suspicion. They generally took three forms, as I hinted at the beginning. The first one is that a lot of people took this stuff personally. So you and I joke around with this stuff, but obviously if we were to do this in a Dharma center with a number of true believers, we'd probably offend them
1: dramatically. Or end up right? being, getting them taking us out the back and, and, and doing us in.
0: Yeah, I don't know if Buddhists do that, do they?
1: They do, they do. They, they do, they, okay. Yeah, you don't see them do it, but, you know. <laughs> it's, like the Monty, it's like the Monty Python sketch with the uh, uh, okay, house growing. I think
0: you've got a film of this you're holding somewhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Passes this Buddhists, is the... Kick,
0: this kick is up the, a punk. The, the um... <laughs> Yeah, we're playing with this stuff, but a lot of people did take it personally. Now, there was some personality politics going on in the comments section, but the work itself was undeniably good, uh, wholesome, rich, and full of opportunities. So the first criticism was personal. I'm going to enact some of these voices now, Stuart. I don't like the way you're talking. You're not very nice. You're arrogant. You're cruel. You're rude. Uh, something along those lines. That would be the first one. Um, one of the big, great critiques there was the tone or the, the way of communicating, the communicative style I would suggest that in the long term, none of that really matters. What matters is the ideas. And I think if that became an excuse for not engaging with the material, then that was a problem. So that was the first critique. The second critique was that it was too intellectual. It was too heady. It was too demanding. Again, uh, I think we've shown today that although we've, we've used some big words and we've, we've said some mildly intellectual stuff, much of what we said should have been accessible to a relatively intelligent listener. So that's, that's the second one. It, it requires effort. Sorry, folks. Don't let that make, be a reason for you to give up. And the third reason really is the more interesting one perhaps is that there would be a disconnect between the theory or the theoretical and people's personal experience. But none of those criticisms actually discount the theory. None of those criticisms or those approaches actually engage with undermining the ideas. Even attacking it intellectually did not actually undermine the weight of the ideas that and co-presented.
1: See, that's interesting. Sorry to jump in there. That's interesting though because to actually count up these points i'm sure there's stuff in there that isn't accurate i'm sure there's stuff in there that can be by uh, not accurate i mean that can be worked on that can be improved as i see it the only way that you could counteract those arguments is to understand or to know what the counter arguments are but you can't know what the counter arguments are if you're coming from traditional buddhism it just it's just way too out of field to be able to do that a thinking critically aware person would have to go through the process of understanding what what these guys have laid out and if you're just going to go it goes against the rules of my teacher well sorry that just don't cut it or in the case of the niceness
0: brigade that it doesn't quite fit into my idea of nice benevolent healthy communication I personally enjoyed all of that, to be honest. As a break from the sort of niceness of Buddhist discourse, it was refreshing. But I, I can obviously understand why some people would be offended. Uh, but what concerns me is when that offense becomes an excuse for not looking at the material, or again, as as I've said throughout, defending one's position or protecting one's identity, or using that position to justify their own assumptions. If anything, a good criticism that is valid is that that was the failing of the project. Failure, obviously has to come as an evaluation response to the original intentions of the creators of the project. So although I think Glenn and Co actually did say on a number of occasions that they would like Buddhist teachers to come and engage with the material, it was inevitable that those people would not because it was just too challenging. It was too apparently aggressive to what most Buddhist teachers would consider appropriate communication. That, on the one hand, did sort of emphasise you know, the limitations of these people and their embeddedness in the Buddhist discourse of, let's say, moral ethical behavior, which, as David Chapman pointed out, ends up being sort of white, middle class, liberal, progressive ethics and morality. I think it's a failing myself, and I've often said this before, because I actually hold to this NLP uh, truism, Stuart, that the, whether it's true or not is relevant, but as an approach to communication, it's kind of kind of helpful that the meaning of your communication is actually the way it's understood or received what does that do it doesn't mean you have to go and try and be nice to people but it does mean you have to you can if you choose to attempt to communicate in a way that will lead to the other person more likely understanding the point you would like to make it's always an interesting intellectual challenge when you find what you think is obvious or is clearly true Uh, it's quite interesting when other people say no i don't get it and you try and explain to them in your own sort of idiom, and it just doesn't go in to say, okay, you know, how could I actually present this in a way that this person would actually get it? How could I invite them into this new space of understanding? That's a quality of skillful teaching, and as a teacher, I'm trying to do that. That's my view. I think that would be a valid criticism. And I think the second criticism that I think would be valid too, is to have a greater tolerance for the phenomenological experiences that people have in working with meditation and so forth. Critical thinking has to go or has to accompany a re-evaluation of your own worth, which is to say, if you want to actually stand up and engage in critical debate with somebody and you've got low self-esteem or low self-worth, or you lack confidence. And the sort of confidence that's not... I know best, I'm right. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. I mean, this is what I think so far. This is what I know and this is what I feel. This is what I intuit and this is what I've understood. I accept it might not be right, but there is value there and that is my experience and I've got to start with that. So let's talk about that. If the you know the interlocutor, whether it be a Glenn or a Tom or a Matthias or whoever, actually could, let's say, have a little bit more tolerance for that side of things, I think they may have been able to possibly articulate some of this material in a way that would be more user-friendly and more possibly have an impact on those who are perhaps at the start of, you know, becoming disenchanted with Buddhism, but have got one foot in and one foot out. I think actually if you talk about ideology in a good way and you talk about buddhims and you talk about ventriloquism, actually that would be a nice little push out the door for a lot of people who are undecided. And that certainly was something that did not take place at that site. And again, I repeat, that's not necessarily their intent, but me as an individual, I see value. It's like coming back to the documentary and the enthusiasm I discussed at the beginning. My enthusiastic sort of impulse is this stuff is brilliant. This needs to be shared. Lots of people could gain benefit from this. A lot of people actually could wake up further from the limitations of Buddhism by engaging with this material. We, you know, it should be made more available because that's that's what I desire. That's what I'd like to be part of modern culture, modern society, that people are actually getting better education. And this is a major piece of that in Buddhist circles. So those are my critiques, Stuart. I don't know if any of those resonate with you, if you've got something to add. But as far as the, the topics today, I think we're coming to a close.
1: I think we are coming to a close. I'd like to say you're absolutely right. Like the meaning of the communication is the results that you get. That's absolutely true. That's a That's something that I work with in my life. However, I would say as a counter-argument to that, could it have potentially been the case that doing that could have slowed the project down? That it could have maybe stopped the, the inevitable ongoing work that was going? Is it possible that it could have compromised it in some way? And if that was a danger, is that an intolerable danger? Is it the fact that we just get this work down, we just go, Pfft, we slap it down, we get it done, and then we just deal with what it does afterwards? Because that's a punk that's a punk attitude, you know? It's just like it's in your face, this is what we're going to do. Respectfully or disrespectfully, you can do that both ways. Is, is it possible that that was a theme of the work? And I think that that's a potential possibility. I'm really looking forward to hearing what Glenn's going to talk about. I don't know what he's going to talk about. But everything that you said there, and everything that you covered, yeah, definitely has merit. And I think it takes different personality types and different, different approaches to to reach the people that this needs to reach and that's definitely something that this podcast aims to do you know what i mean good
0: nice we should end with a recommendation what could people do well if people wanted to take on board some of this material the first step would be to stop reproducing buddhist language completely Uh, that's usually the quickest way to get out of it i think
1: but my guru doesn't understand that sentence matthew
0: Uh, just stop parroting buddhism think for yourself um, question, question, question. And there it is. Well, as you mentioned, the Speculative Non-Buddhism Project came to a close. Every so often something pops up there, but uh, the meat of it all is, is done. Glenn Matthias' and Pepper's book is available. Go and check that out. And we're going to have Glenn on next time. I've got a number of questions to ask him. We'll see where that conversation ends up, Stuart, and uh, how it goes. We, uh, we've got a final element to add in our pursuit of entertainment uh, information and cultural richness to it oh, that sounds nice we're going to not only provide you with book recommendations but a song. song we're going to end up yeah a song a bit of music we're going to end each of our podcast episodes with a piece of music some people may not know i also work on the radio i run an english language program in italy and we promote bands and so forth and I get a lot of them on as guests. And, and I thought it would be nice to share some of their music just in case you're interested. You know, we mentioned about the book. we try and keep it in theme with the podcast. We'll do the same with the music. So if Glenn comes on next week, we will have a punk song. Today's song, though, is actually by the artist who provided our theme tune, our opening tune. Okay, his name is Rob Smith. He, his musical sort of moniker these days is RSD. But he started out as a mainstay of the Bristol music scene, Bristol, England, not America, and the Bristol Sound Heading off to massive attack, tricky potter's head. Many of you will be familiar with that music. Well, RSD was really the godfather of the whole thing. Piece of music we're gonna finish up is with is one of his as a nice thank you for him providing the theme tune. And it's called C. Stuart, we're done. Can we say
1: goodbye? We can say goodbye. Thank you for listening. it's always always, always a pleasure to do these. Challenging, enlightening, educational, and evolutionary. You know, thank you for listening. Matthew, thank you for the music, the book recommendation, I am going to read that book. <laughs> Go for
0: it. We could say that this was a dharmic, enlightening, wisdom-filled, compassionate, basically good podcast, Stuart. Basically good. Bye for now.
1: Bye for now.